You're listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. Today in the program, we talk with the leader of the Iowa Business Council about a bill that would allow the sale of large tracts of Iowa farmland to large national and international companies to create mega sites for business developments. And we talk with an Iowa State University economist about the latest farmland value survey, which tracks farmland prices year to year. Some of the most expensive farmland is here in northwest Iowa. And as we get into the new year and our resolutions to improve our health and welfare begin to fade, we talk with a physician who says there are some ways we can conquer our addictions to alcohol, medications, caffeine, and other substances. But first, a look at the news. Emergency management departments across Iowa are keeping a close watch over this new round of extreme winter weather, with wind chills dropping to dangerous levels across the state. And that includes Michael Montino here in Woodbury County. It is going to be very, very cold. We're going to see those wind chills drop into the negatives. And as a result of that, too, I would recommend avoiding long-term exposure outside to avoid hypothermia and frostbite. Montino says with the cold expected to stick around through Tuesday, he advises anyone going out on caucus night to bundle up. Polk County activated its extreme temperature plan with DART offering free rides to and from Welcoming Center. The National Weather Service says storms of this magnitude are fairly rare and usually only happen once or twice per decade. It's starting to look like more charter schools will be coming to Iowa. Governor Kim Reynolds announced this week she plans to use $5 million from federal COVID relief funds to establish startup grants for charter schools. And eight new state-funded charter schools were approved Thursday by the Iowa State Board of Education. Five of them would open in Des Moines and three in Cedar Rapids. Most would begin classes in the fall of 2025. Mike Hugley helped recruit many of the new charters as executive director of the Iowa Coalition for Public Charter Schools. He says he targeted organizations with experience in other states with dropout recovery and closing achievement gaps. I look at public charter schools as, as problem solvers. So there's there's no reason to bring a new school here unless it's solving a problem or filling a need in the community. The approved charter schools include a school for students at risk of dropping out by the Cedar Rapids nonprofit Empowering Youths of Iowa. And the Sioux City Community School District has won a federal grant of almost $6 million to buy 15 new school buses, what are considered to be clean school buses. It's a grant with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The Clean School Bus Program is being funded with Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which provides $5 billion over five years for schools to replace older diesel buses with new clean school buses. Those include electric school buses, propane, and compressed natural gas. The electric buses are now proving to be the most popular option, and the clean buses will help to improve air quality for children and their families as they are low or zero emission vehicles.
You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. Two major business groups are now pushing for a bill to allow foreign businesses to buy Iowa farmland and receive tax credits for large business developments. It will be called the Major Economic Growth Attraction, or MEGA program. The bill passed the Iowa Senate with nearly unanimous support last year, but stalled in the House. Some lawmakers say they were concerned about allowing foreign ownership of farmland and about the cost of the tax credits. Joe Murphy is the president of the Iowa Business Council, which represents 21 of Iowa's largest companies. Murphy says the mega bill could help Iowa in several areas, including offering employment and creating investments in rural areas. I talked with him about the project. This is really about um, providing Iowa the opportunity to compete in a way that would uh, lure in a new a, a new business entity into our into our state, whether that's from another state or business expansion uh, from a company that that could be owned by by a different entity as well. So this provides a really great opportunity for Iowa to really future ready its economy. Um, this is about population growth because if you were if we are able to bring in a, a new company to Iowa. Um, we're not just talking. We're not talking about remote jobs. We're talking about bringing in physical assets, creating physical assets, moving new uh, new people into our state. So it's really a population growth strategy, as well, which which we're obviously very very excited about. And, and the legislation is is really well crafted in the sense that it provides um, the opportunity for. Uh, uh, these companies to to get involved in, in key aspects of Iowa's already pre-existing economy, and that would be areas like advanced manufacturing, research and development, um, and biosciences. Obviously, those those three areas are are key to our economy, and we have really great core competency uh, in, in all three of those areas. And so, this is about this is about trying to hit a home run. Frankly, um, this is about trying to attract a business that's going to spend at least $1 billion in our state. Um, and that multiplier effect um, cascades then down through uh, the entire community. Um, and so we're, we're really excited about this opportunity. It has great bipartisan support. It, last year, it passed the Iowa Senate by a vote of, by a vote of 45 to 2. And we're, we're excited to, to get this uh, going here in the, uh, next week. You talk about loosening some some rules or regulations. What exactly would this do, like, t- you know, technically? So this bill would uh, create sort of an incentive package um, for for uh, Iowa Economic Development Authority or uh, the local economic development organizations there in the community to go out and and close the deal effectively um, with with these with these business opportunities. So there'd be There'd be incentives related um, to jobs. There'd be incentives related to uh, construction costs. There'd be incentives related to um, uh, income uh, exemptions uh, and sales tax exemptions based on that construction. And so this is really about lowering the the barrier of entry for a a new existing company to come into the state, to incent them to come into the state, uh, and thereby um, creating a, a whole bunch of economic development in the long term. As I said earlier, uh, this would this would be you know a, a minimum of one billion dollars in investment and create jobs that pay at least 140 percent of the qualifying wage threshold in in our state. Have you got any pushback from uh, anyone on this bill? Anyone in the legislature or in the communities or anything? And this enjoys you know really strong bipartisan support 
Uh, it passed the Iowa Senate 45 uh, yes votes to two no votes. Um, last year, uh, there were some there were some questions certainly asked last year in the House of Representatives, and we've been working with with House House members to kind of um, answer those questions, clarify any concerns that they have. Um, and I think that we've we've done a lot a lot better job um, in the interim this year uh, going into 2024 to make sure that those questions are answered, um, that we're being transparent, and that we set ourselves up for success. Because right now, you know, a lot of other states around the Midwest and certainly around the nation have programs like this already. And so, with Iowa not having a megasite program uh, in the state, we're really at a competitive disadvantage. In fact, we're not even allowed to compete. Um, right now because we don't have these these incentive programs and packages. So other states um, are, are really lapping us in, in that sense. And so this really is about uh, future uh, future economic growth and, and setting up sort of the next, next generation of Iowa innovation in our state. Here in Iowa, I think that a lot of it is about not being able to find that good job. That's a, that's a fair point. And, and, you know, this is about bringing those opportunities into our state. And, and if, we can, if we can bring in new and exciting opportunities and, and have them fit right into the existing um, uh, economic uh, uh, framework or, or threshold that we have here in Iowa, that's just going to set up you know, not only long-term success for that company, but long-term success uh, for the whole for the whole system as well in that region, and then ultimately the state. I don't know if, if any of this these problems were connected to that uh, first solar project. You know, not coming to Iowa after all. Um, a lot of people have been saying that we were not, you know, business friendly enough for that. I, I think that's a really <laughs> really good example um, of something that we could have. Uh, taken advantage of, or the state could have taken advantage of the. I believe that company ended up uh, investing or, or plans to invest more than a billion dollars in a facility in, in Louisiana, and that's an example of a state that has these types of programs. Um, Iowa does not, and, and was not able then to even uh, compete um, in that in that discussion with with First Solar, which obviously has been has been publicized recently. Yeah, regionally, locally, I know that we don't get businesses up here in Northwest Iowa. Sometimes they often they go to South Dakota, frankly, because it's a better tax setup and lots of other reasons. And they're very friendly to to new business coming in there. You know, we're we're making a lot of progress on like our existing tax code and working towards a flat flat tax, which is certainly going to help. But if we can continue to um, evolve our economic development. Uh, toolbox, if you will, in order to continue to compete for these new opportunities. You know, these are dynamic situations. It's changing. The world of economic development is is changing every week, every day. And if we're not updating the tools by which we're using to compete and craft new economic development opportunities for our citizens, we'll be left behind. And so that's why we think that this is such an important thing to do moving forward. That was Joe Murphy, the president of the Iowa Business Council, which represents 21 of Iowa's largest companies. The IBC is supporting legislation that would lift the 320-acre limit on foreign purchases of Iowa farmland and also create tax breaks for the so-called Major Economic Growth Attraction, or megasites. The megasite legislation has been unpopular in states like Michigan, where groups of farmers and those who want to protect nature have protested against the law.
Well, speaking of farmland, Iowa State University's yearly farmland survey was released recently. It shows values have plateaued even as they hit a record high. The average value increased about 4% for a statewide average of $11,835 an acre. Assistant professor and extension economist Rabile Shandu oversees the survey, which includes input from ag lenders, brokers, and farm managers. She says interest rates and inflation have been strong factors in the rise of farmland values in Iowa. Shandu explains the results of the survey and what it means for Iowans. The way we want to break it up to understand for everybody is there are two main things that are contributing to the land values. We have the farm income and then we have the interest rate. Things that help the farm income are also going to increase the land values. Things that are going to decrease the farm income are going to bring the land market down. And with interest rate, it's 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 like straightforward. Everything that increases the interest rate or when interest rate itself increases, that creates a downward pressure on the land values. But an interesting thing with the interest rates is that it doesn't happen right away. So the interest rate hikes actually began in 2022 in the summer of 2022, and uh, we're going to be absorbing the impact of those aggressive hikes all through 2023 and 2024, and a little bit a couple of years after that as well. So interest rate has kind of a lagged effect. So this year, we were still experiencing the impact of high interest rates that started in 2022 and the increases that happened in 2023. After that, we'll see where the interest rates go. If the interest rates stop increasing, which the Fed announced, and if they decrease, so we're going to see the present effect of the interest rates decreasing and some of the past effect that is created from the pressure in the past years. But all of that is balanced by the high farm incomes. And I know if the input costs increase this year and the farm economy, like if, if we look at specific things, it's, it doesn't seem as optimistic, but if we're comparing the actual scale where farm income stands, we're, we're still higher than our pre-COVID levels. And pre, the, the COVID levels were very, very inflated because of extensive government support that propped up the farm balance sheets. Some people say, well, how high can, can the land prices go, especially in you know, counties like Sioux County, where it is so very high? I, I don't think there's there's like a, a, an answer to that question that we can come up with come up with like mathematically or based on calculation. Well, as as high as it can go depends on on how high people are willing to bid at auctions, how high they're how much they're willing to pay for a specific tract of land. It's those factors that are going to make uh, those record high sales. Uh, other than that, land has always. Uh, been able to beat inflation. And if we're like making an index, and I was just listening to my colleague, Bruce Cherick from U- University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and he has an index that compares the performance of land market to inflation over the last decades, a couple of decades. And uh, what, what he showed there was that land has always increased at a higher rate than inflation. So if you're creating a lower land or lower bar for for the increase in land values, in the more, not even a very long term, in the shorter term as well, land is going to outperform inflation almost all the time. Now, as high, like what is the highest it can go? That uh, I think it's not going to deviate too much away from its uh, like overall trend of a 
steady increase of i would say less than less than 20ish percent in most years and less than 10% in and i would say most years uh, actually not even 20 uh, and every time it sees a peak like that like we saw in the last few years it is followed by either very small increases in the next couple of years or very slight decreases because on average that is the sustainable rate at which we're beating inflation at which the it makes sense the the cash trends do not drastically increase because the the increase in land value is also balanced by that on the other hand so to keep the balance it's going to remain pretty steady after we're out of the covid uh, the covid boost which we seem to have gotten out of this year with the slowing in the land market is there anything else you think people should know i think an interesting thing that we also ask in the study is about people's expectations of land values um so our respondents are ag lenders brokers realtors and farmers farm managers etc and we ask them whether uh, what is their predicted change in land values in one year and in 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 five years and that is to understand whether people think land as um, land is valued like it's it's too high uh, or if it's going towards a bubble and it's interesting to see that um this was not really unexpected a lot of respondents uh, about half or so they they expect um a modest decrease in land values in the next year like they they feel land value is higher but they don't feel it it has deviated away from the fundamentals and then they expect uh, almost like unilaterally uh, an uh, an increase a bounce up in the land market in 5 years so that's like that's generally uh, not really a surprise to many that the land market had slowed down this year because most people across the state uh, around 60% they felt like this year land values were too high but then they also feel the market will correct itself within a year and uh, will will go back to the just right category of values not too low not too high when that was announced in the last few years about the, especially up in this area of the state, with Sioux County and, and surrounding counties, how high the land values were, I would talk to people who had families who had farms there, and they said they never thought they would have this much investment on, on paper, you know what I mean, on the farm, that they would be the recipients, well, not the recipients, but the holders of that kind of value. I I think I think that happened not just with the land that happened with like farm incomes as well with a lot of government support like it, that's not really the um people did not expect to get cash at that rate from the government uh as well and it's just that uh, we really tried to support the economy during covid which led to things like this phenomena like these in a lot of different markets land it's a very clear example it it like makes us see that it's it's a lot of ballooning that happened during these 3 years but we'll uh, we'll adjust it probably pretty quickly because the inflation rate also rose so in this year the the uh, real inflation adjusted increase in land values was just half a percent so in in real terms we did not actually see much change in land values it's pretty much the same as before so i think like when we're accounting for inflation and when we're thinking of like what the longer term trend is it's going to remain pretty much balanced and of course like in terms of dollar amount you you're absolutely right it feels suddenly like oh my god i suddenly have this millions of millions of dollars in my in my balance sheet next to land and that's 
great, but it's going to balance. It has balanced to some extent with higher costs and other things as well, and it'll balance in the next few years in, in terms of land value itself as well. That was Rabal Shandu, assistant professor and extension economist with Iowa State University. She oversees the Farmland Value Survey. It includes input from ag lenders, brokers, and farm managers. This year, the average value increased about 4% for a statewide average of $11,835 an acre. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. As many of us try to stick to our New Year's resolutions or have a dry January, for instance, we might wonder why it is so hard to give up our enjoyable habits like a drink at night or a smoke. Habits can become addictions, though, and Dr. Nazinga Harrison digs into why and how that happens in her new book, Unaddiction. Harrison says heredity and environmental factors play a big part in our addictions, but there are ways to address them and change our lives. The coffee we drink to the food we eat to vaping and edibles, etc. Addiction is an illness. And so at the point addiction develops, the biological and brain-based um, drive removes the choice. And 40 to 60% of our risk of developing addiction is coded in our DNA the day we are born. Wow, that is that is amazing. Yeah, and it's um, if you look at asthma, diabetes, hypertension, it is equal or less. Addiction is equal or more inherited than those other illnesses. Um, the good news is when you know that, that gives you information to practice prevention or maybe make a different choice about drug use than you otherwise would before an addiction develops. Um, but it also means the remaining of your risk of developing addiction is psychological and environmental, um, which we can have even more control over if we just know the risk factors that we're looking for and how to respond to those or prevent those. So in the book, you talk a little bit about different areas that affect addiction, and you talk about addiction predictors. And you talk about how often having uh, adverse things happen when we're children is one of them. Yes. So um, six conversations in the book really reflect kind of like six buckets, we can call them, that I look to when I'm helping a person with addiction so that we can try to develop their own individualized magic formula. That's biological, which we just talked about. Some of these you're born into. Biological, that's your DNA risk. Psychological is what you just mentioned. Those experiences that you have as a child, um, there's a scale called Adverse Childhood Experiences, ACE, ACEs. And on this scale of 10, if you have four or more of these ACEs, in adulthood, that predicts your risk for developing many chronic conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, premature birth, obesity, mental health conditions, and addiction. And so one of the tools we help people with, with in the book is score your ACEs. And then if you know what your ACEs are and you know that that's a risk factor, maybe you make different choices around your drug use 
maybe that helps you recognize that your drug use right now is a little concerning to you. That certainly helps us if you have an addiction, mild, moderate, or severe, to start addressing those childhood experiences that are still affecting you today. You also talk about how um, it was kind of an interesting way you phrased it, that um, zip code can be more important than genetic code when it comes to addiction. Yes. So we all know about DNA, um, but very few people know about ZNA, which is this concept um, public health researchers have shown us that the zip code you are born into predicts your health in adulthood even more than your DNA. And so we know if you're born into a zip code, um, maybe a lower um, income area or the schools are not good or there's not a sense of community, there are not traditions or there's a liquor store on every corner or these days there's a marijuana dispensary. All of those things actually are adding risk to your developing addiction, even as an adult. And so if you know that, you can start to practice prevention. Or if you're a parent, you can think about the environment. Um, Or if you're an adult, you can think about the environment you're in today and maybe how you can mitigate the risks that come from it. Sometimes when people are trying to... uh detox or or stop their addiction to one thing. They're given a medication to help them. Uh, But you say sometimes some of these medications can create their own problems and you really need to know their effects. Yeah. So you're talking about chapter, chapter four in the book, and we go through the big three most dangerous medications that as doctors we prescribe. And really what I tried to do throughout the book is like empower the reader um, or the listener, also an audio book, with information that allows them to think about themselves as an individual and put a formula in place. And so the three most dangerous medications we have are stimulants. This is like Adderall, Ritalin. They work in the exact same part of the brain as cocaine. And so for people with ADHD, I may need to prescribe a stimulant because the risk of the ADHD is higher than the risk of that medication, but believe I am doing an addiction risk evaluation before I prescribe that. Benzodiazepines like Xanax, Clonopin, Valium work in the exact same part of the brain as alcohol. So in the event there's an illness where I need to use that benzodiazepine, I am doing an addiction risk evaluation, but really I'm just trying to not prescribe that and use something else. And then the third is opioids. These are pain medications like Vicodin, hydrocodone, Tylenol-3s. They work in the exact same part of the brain as heroin. And so you may have just had a horrible car accident and I need to use opioids to control your pain. We can do an addiction risk assessment before I prescribe that medication so that we can be decreasing the chance that you develop an addiction to it. I was just reading a book written by someone who was an addict, and it talks about going from alcohol to different drugs to then going off it and getting prescribed these medications, then becoming addicted to the medications. And it was like a, it was like a terrible cycle. Yes. And it's because neurobiologically in your brain, this pathway is the dopamine pathway. It tells us what we need for survival. 
And the natural things that give you a dopamine signal are food, water, sex, and nurturing. We all need those for the species to survive. The problem with drugs, alcohol included, cigarettes included, vape pens included, is that they give your brain a dopamine signal that is way bigger than food, water, sex, or nurturing ever will. And so your brain interprets that as more critical to your survival than food, more critical than your family, more critical than your job, more critical than anything. That was Dr. Nazinga Harrison talking about her new book, An Addiction, which looks at the hereditary, personal, and environmental factors that cause us to become addicted and how to deal with those. Well, that's it for this edition of The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. Thanks to Steve Smith and Mark Munger. Brett Hayworth is coming up in just a minute on the second half, and he'll have a preview of Monday's Iowa caucuses. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.